Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Unfiltered. Here's tonight's breaking news headline. This is big. The debate over impeachment seemed like a non-starter, given Republicans have circled the wagons around President Trump for two-plus years. But hours ago, a GOP lawmaker said President Trump has, in fact, engaged in impeachable conduct. Michigan Congressman Justin Amash, in a long Twitter thread today, wrote, Here are my principal conclusions. Attorney General Barr has deliberately misrepresented Mueller's report. President Trump has engaged in impeachable conduct. Partisanship has eroded our system of checks and balances. Few members of Congress have read the report. I offer these conclusions only after having read Mueller's redacted report carefully and completely, having read or watched pertinent statements and testimony, and having discussed this matter with my staff, who thoroughly reviewed materials and provided me with further analysis. In comparing Barr's principal conclusions, congressional testimony and other statements to Mueller's report, it is clear that Barr intended to mislead the public about special counsel Robert Mueller's analysis and findings. Barr's misrepresentations are significant but often subtle, frequently taking the form of sleight-of-hand qualifications or logical fallacies which he hopes people will not notice. Under our Constitution, the president shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. While high crimes and misdemeanors is not defined, the context implies conduct that violates the public trust. Contrary to Barr's portrayal, Mueller's report reveals that President Trump engaged in specific actions and a pattern of behavior that meet the threshold for impeachment. In fact, Mueller's report identifies multiple examples of conduct satisfying all the elements of obstruction and justice, and undoubtedly, any person who is not the president of the United States would be indicted based on such evidence. Impeachment, which is a special form of indictment, does not even require probable cause that a crime, for example, obstruction of justice, has been committed. It simply requires a finding that an official has engaged in careless, abusive, corrupt, or otherwise dishonorable conduct. While impeachment should be undertaken only in extraordinary circumstances, the risk we face in an environment of extreme partisanship is not that Congress will employ it as a remedy too often, but rather that Congress will employ it so rarely that it cannot deter misconduct. Our system of checks and balances relies on each branch's jealousy guarding, jealously guarding its powers and upholding its duties under our Constitution. When loyalty to a political party or to an individual trumps loyalty to the Constitution, the rule of law, the foundation of liberty, crumbles. We've witnessed members of Congress from both parties shift their views 180 degrees on the importance of character, on the principles of obstruction of justice, depending on whether they're discussing Bill Clinton or Donald Trump. Few members of Congress even read Mueller's report, 
Their minds were made up based on partisan affiliation, and it showed with representatives and senators from both parties issuing definitive statements on the 448-page report's conclusions within just hours of its release. America's institutions depend on officials to uphold both the rules and spirit of our constitutional system, even when to do so is personally inconvenient or yields a politically unfavorable outcome. Our Constitution is brilliant and awesome. It deserves a government to match. Again, that was Justin Amash's full Twitter thread just hours ago. Here's the deal. Democrats like Nancy Pelosi have insisted that impeachment would require public support and the support of Republicans. Well, they don't have plural yet, but they do have one. That's significant. So will one turn into some? For more on this, let me bring in Bill Kristol, director of Defending Democracy Together. Uh, welcome, Bill. So Justin Amash has, as you know, criticized the president before. How big a deal is this line of criticism, though? I think it's a big deal. I mean, Trump supporters will say that Amash has speculated about challenging Trump in 2020. Maybe it's a libertarian. He's a bit of a loner in Congress. I mean, for better or worse, he, he follows his own uh, path. I think he takes the Constitution very seriously. But I think what he wrote in that Twitter, the impressive thing for me, though, is that Twitter thread, which is you, you read, I think, the whole thing, is very sober, uh, very serious. He claims yeah. to have read the report, discussed it with the staff, presumably with other lawyers and experts. And I think it does sort of put front and center the question that, in a funny way, the Democrats haven't done because they're so concerned about the politics of this, is, which is, what mm. does the report say? What are the obligations of the House in pursuing the possible conclusions of the report or suggestions of the report? Shouldn't they have hearings to find out what the truth is about some of these questions of obstruction and so forth? I think Amash sort of puts that front and center. Mm. So it's not so much that he's one Republican out of 240 and that's you know, one vote and so forth. I think it's going to put a lot of pressure on Democrats and Republicans in the House to sort of say, you know, could we get serious about taking the report seriously? Could we have hearings where experts discuss each of the possible issues of obstruction and get a little bit away from, gee, is it risky for the Democrats to do this? And, you know, all that right. kind of thing. So uh, as, you, as you point out, he's, he's not fully calling for impeachment. He didn't call for it in that very lengthy Twitter thread. And I think that's probably on purpose. So do you then think he's, he's really just conditioning an environment in which Democrats can go ahead and move forward with their, you know, with their, their plan to do this? Well, well, I think with the plan to have hearings, because the truth is we have the Mueller report. We don't quite have all of it. There's their redactions. But there's a lot of questions that are left hanging. We'd like to see testimony from people, ranging from Don McGahn to Corey Lewandowski to people who are cited in the report. Now, if the White House asserts executive privilege, the House Judiciary Committee, committee may just have to go ahead and say, well, we're just going to have to stipulate that what yeah. Mueller reports is correct. He's not making things up. But, you know, they're entitled to have the witnesses should be called. And Trump, Trump should produce witnesses on the other side. White House should have witnesses who would say, no, no. Oh, that's an incorrect account of what Trump said to Comey or what Trump said to McGahn or what Trump said to Lewandowski. So yeah. I think what this does is greatly increase the, ch the chances of the House Judiciary Committee moving ahead in a serious way, I hope, with a set of hearings yeah. that should explicitly not be for the sake of impeaching Trump, but for the sake of following up on this report uh, to see whether it's appropriate to what it's appropriate to do. Maybe it's impeachment. Maybe it's nothing. Maybe it's a censure or something in between. Maybe it's impeachment on some counts, but not on other counts. Um, so, I, you know, that I think I think Amash has done a real service personally, though, in, in laying it out in this sober way. He didn't, he's, you know, yeah. and, and he really now he has to be ready to defend his points. He's claiming he read the report. He discussed it with staff.
staff and with lawyers. I assume he'll be on TV and on radio and interviews. Well, and he has point, to really lay out, yeah. he has to be able to lay out well, what is so worrisome to you, not sure. just a, a headline, you know? And, and to that point, we should let people know we did call Justin Amash. We asked for him to come on. Um, he was unavailable. But uh, I'm sure, as you say, he will have to go on television and more elaborately um, explain, explain his point of view. Um, let's talk about Michigan, though, for a second. It's a state that Trump won. It seems now entirely gettable for Democrats. Do you think that's part of his calculus as well? No, because his, he's now going to get primaried in the Republican. He's in a safe Republican district. He's going to get primaried by a pro-Trump Republican, presumably. I think for he sure. is thinking possibly of running as a libertarian, uh, even for the presidency. So who knows what his own personal ambitions are? I, I don't, you know, I don't know him well, and I, I don't know honestly. I don't, it's not worth speculating on. But again, I think what's impressive about this is the degree to which he presents himself as a sober. A yeah. member of the House trying to do the House's constitutional duty. And I think it would be good for the country if an awful lot more people, they're intelligent people in the House, they're Republicans and Democrats, they should read the report and they should give right. us the benefit of their thinking and what they would like to know. And the House Judiciary Committee should begin sketching out the kinds of hearings they should have. I think this kind of, all the politics and then of course the complicated subpoenas and all that have been sort of a distraction from the fact that Robert Mueller and his team delivered a lengthy report which is full of interesting and, you know, consequences sequential conclusions, some of which are very disturbing about the president's behavior, mm -hmm. if you actually read the report. And it's up to the House to decide how disturbing and really what the truth is and whether it warrants impeachment or not, or maybe censure. But in any case, to move, I, it would be terrible just not to have hearings and not to really ever just to drop the ball because right. some Democrats decide, oh, it's a little risky politically. It would be terrible to rush to judgment and say, you know, we're just going to go right ahead with some partisan vote. And I think Amash has done, as I said, a real service in making, yeah. creating the possibility of a more sober and serious approach to this. Well, as you say, it's up to the House, but would you expect now someone like Senator Ben Sass, who's been equally criti critical of the president, to maybe also weigh, weigh in on this now that Justin Amash has? You know, I, the senators might have a little bit of an excuse that they kind of you know, right. go. But I think other House members, including serious Republicans who haven't been lapdogs for the Trump White House, we're now going to get asked this on tomorrow or on Monday or Tuesday when they yeah. reappear here in Washington. And sure. it will be very interesting to see what they say, especially ones who are on the Judiciary Committee, but also others uh, who have some knowledge, people on the Intelligence Committee and so forth. Uh, so I, I, yes, I think this really does put front and center the question of impeachment in a funny way more. Justin Amash, who's a backbench Republican congressman, yeah. is, may have put it front and center more than Nancy Pelosi and Jerry Nadler and all these important Democrats wow. yeah. who have been doing all these other things except discussing the actual report and what the obligations of the House pursuant to it are. Well, we'll see. As I mentioned, Nancy Pelosi has said to move forward on impeachment would require public support. There isn't that yet. Um, public polling for impeachment is, is not supportive. Um, and bipartisan support. She's got one. We'll see if she can get any more. Bill Crystal, thanks so much for joining me tonight. Thanks, Izzy. Up next, the controversial abortion laws that are passing in many state houses have reignited a very personal debate and drawn pushback from some unexpected places. That's next. Thanks to a wave of controversial new legislation in states like Georgia, Alabama, Missouri and Louisiana, abortion and women's rights are once again dominating the headlines and the minds of many voters. With 2020 looming large, the new laws are sure to have a significant impact on the election. More on that in a second. But first, let me get something out of the way. I am a pro-life conservative. I come to that decision not because I'm religious 
or even because I'm a Republican, but because I simply believe children are the greatest gift and that all life is precious. That said, I also think these new laws and bills that ban abortion, making no exception for cases of rape and incest, as is the case in Alabama, Missouri, and Louisiana, are barbaric and extreme. It is absolutely inhumane to force a woman to carry the child of her rapist or her abuser or her molester relative. How is that protecting the dignity of human life? How is that good for women? How is that good for society? The pro-life position has always been strongest when it comes from a place of compassion and empathy, not indifference and cruelty. And these laws aren't compassionate or even principled. They're just punitive. And in many cases, they're punishing the most vulnerable among us. Disenfranchised women in poor communities who suffered the worst human indignities and abuses. Yes, let's punish those women. To my friends on the right, I just say it's okay to say this. It's okay to say these laws go too far. The extremists on this issue will bully you. Yes, they will question your pro-life creds. They'll call you a cuck or a liberal, as they have me. But they're wrong. You can defend the right to life without demanding we re-victimize women who have already suffered just for the sake of political purity. Okay, now putting the personal aside, the political is a problem for the right, too. Most voters aren't located on either extreme of the abortion debate. They're in the middle. A 2018 Gallup poll found that just 29 percent of Americans believe abortion should be legal in all circumstances. And likewise, only 18 percent of Americans believe abortion should be illegal in all circumstances. These effective abortion bans appeal to a very slim minority of voters, voters who were likely going to vote Republican no matter what. Ultimately, these extreme laws will only help boost Democrats and pro-choice groups, driving turnout and fundraising in numbers we probably haven't seen in a long time. As conservative writer Jonathan V. Last wrote in The Bulwark, the Alabama abortion law is the most damaging development to the pro-life movement in decades. So just how badly will Republicans pay for this? Let's discuss. Joining me now is former Michigan Governor Jennifer Granholm. Governor, welcome. I know you don't like these laws. I want to get to that. But first... You ran a state. I don't have to tell you how federalism works. This was decided at the state level. So what's wrong with that? Well, clearly, first of all, you have a Supreme Court decision that says that it's unconstitutional. So then it gets us to the question, right, the political question about what will happen if the Supreme Court takes up any of the cases that are currently pending or any of these that were just passed. So, you know, if it wipes out, if it ends up wiping out the freedoms that women have had with respect to their own bodily integrity, um, that is just a massive sea change, both for women, but also as you led into this politically, it yeah. is a problem. So when I was governor, uh, SE, you know, I had a Republican House and a Republican Senate, and I used to say that my favorite four-letter word was veto. In this particular case, two bills uh, were sent, or a, a bill banning certain types of abortion and abortion procedures were sent to me repeatedly uh, over and over again. And I just, you know, I, I just continued to veto because I, mm. as you indicated, strongly believe that this is a woman and her doctor's choice. This yeah. is not the choice of politicians in the legislature. So let's I appreciate talk about what you the, said, though, at the beginning oh. of this, Essie. Thank you for uh, your courage in standing up. I know that you're pro-life, and I also know that you have a rational position on this from someone who's coming from where you are. So thank you for thank your you. courage in doing that. Thanks. Um, so let's talk about the bills. 
even Republicans are speaking out against the extremism of, of these laws. Ultimately, do you think the courts will uphold them or, or not? Well, I mean, obviously it ends up coming down to Kavanaugh, right? Which has a... Maybe. A, a we don't know. Well... Well, we don't know, but I mean, yeah. this is the this was the promise that was given by the president. He was right. going to appoint a pro-life majority on the court, so that's what we've got. So yeah. we're going to see. I mean, as as I say, there are three cases that are pending right now to see whether the Supreme Court will grant cert, will grant the opportunity to be heard. If, in fact, the court takes those up, that will be the first indication about where Roberts will stand. I mean, we, right. we all know that they are not in favor of abortion, right? So the question is, will they uphold what they said when they were confirmed, particularly Kavanaugh, as he said, Roe v. Wade, that right. it is settled law, right? That yeah. it is, you know, it is, it is precedent, precedent upon precedent. So, you know, we'll see. And this right. also has a bit of a reflection on Susan Collins as well, because she was clearly the, the oh, person sure, yeah. to end up giving him that. And she's going to be up for election in 2020. Some yeah. of these cases will be decided by then. It will yeah. be an interesting um, ripple effect. No, that's a good point. Um, let's talk about the math for a little bit, because there are very few issues that produce single issue voters. For Republicans, there are two, guns and abortion. But abortion's got single-issue voters on the left as well. And I'm betting a lot more after these laws. Do you think we're going to see a wave of women and millennials turn out in record numbers in 2020? Absolutely. I mean, millennial women are and some men, too, are horrified by this development because it is so utterly draconian. And if you thought that the Me Too movement was powerful in 2018, just wait, just wait until 2020. This will galvanize a whole onslaught of other, you know, often these younger voters are more difficult to get to the polls. This yeah. will not be difficult to get people to the polls as a result of this. Now, I, I grant you that is something that galvanizes the right, too. But as you noted, there's yeah. a small slice who believe that abortion should be illegal in all cases. That's what this right. Ohio bill, I mean, Ohio was heartbeat, but that's what this Alabama bill does. Essentially, they both do the same thing. So yeah. there, you, you know, the swath of the electorate that would be galvanized on the in the middle and on the left is greater than the swath yeah. on the right. And that is an important consideration. I think it's going to backfire. Yeah. My, 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 sen my sense is the same, that, that it's going to turn out a lot of new, new voters um, there, in 2020. But we'll have to wait and see. There's just quickly, uh, Essie, there's a really sure. interesting article that was published today in the, or an op-ed in Washington Post where it said it sort of played out. If you grant the personhood to a fetus, to an embryo, what does it mean if you play this out? It means that, well, all of a sudden men might have to be responsible for child support at the time of conception. You might yeah. have to count Got a it. fetus yeah. in the census. You know, I mean, there's a whole array of things yeah. that would logically have to be decided and do you really want to go down that rat trap? Governor Granholm, thanks so much for coming on. I appreciate it. You bet. The president says he wants Iran to give him a call to work out all the escalating tension. Trump's habit of saber rattling followed by olive branches is something I'll explore in a bit. But first, I'm really excited to tell you about my candidate of the week. That's next. Earlier today in Philadelphia, Joe Biden officially kicked off his presidential bid at a packed rally. But like a photographic negative, it's another guy who makes my candidate of the week tonight. He's candidate number 23, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio. He may have to change his name, though, to de Blas. 
His announcement wasn't met with the support he probably wanted. New Yorkers and late-night talk show hosts alike dragged him hard. A local police union chanted liar outside his ABC News interview kicking off his run. Polls are equally unkind. In a recent Marist College poll, 65% of statewide Democrats said they'd be unhappy if he ran. That was last place among the Democrats tested. All that said, de Blasio was a long shot for mayor, and he easily won two terms. He's trying out his Trump insults now. I called him what he should be called, con Don, because he's a con man. I'm not sure con Don is going to catch on, but you go, Glenn Coco. Okay, here to discuss are former RNC communications director Doug High and former senior aide for Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign, Joel Payne. Joel, New Yorkers yell at him at the gym. (laughs) Where does he get this amazing sense of self and self-confidence? Well, it's a New York thing. Look who's in the White House. I mean, (laughs) come on. Listen, I agree with you, and de Blasio certainly is not going to race to the top of anybody's list, but there is a path for de Blasio. All of the things that Hillary, or rather that Bernie and that Elizabeth Warren are talking about, he's actually kind of implemented here in New York City. Uh Universal pre-K, decriminalizing marijuana, uh, universal paid family leave. So there's a there's a reason why he's entering the race. You there's a path. You don't mean an No, there's a, but there's a but there's a reason why a progressive like Bill de Blasio would say, hey, there's room for me in the race. Yeah, I mean, to, to Joel's point, Doug, you know who New Yorkers also hated? Donald Trump? Yeah. Oh, I, I think so sure. In, in theory, these things are possible. When you're number 23 with a bullet, uh, you might be able to get somewhere near that avenue. I think Jerry Seinfeld said the road less taken is less taken for a reason. <laughs> right? But I think here's the challenge for de Blasio. He's clearly not running to be the nominee, we assume, um, or president, but to, to influence those issues that he's been successful on in New York. The challenge is, as we're learning with uh, Kristen Gillibrand, you got to get to the debate stage to change the That's debate. Right. And if he doesn't get to those thresholds, he's going to be and also ran very quickly. He did this already. Ready, though, remember, he was like the fifth place candidate for mayor. I remember. Remember Wiener, remember Christine I Quinn, do. Bill Thompson. He wasn't even supposed to be in the top three, and he ended up winning. So, so he's got a path to this. Okay. Um, so so Debla has a very noted bad relationship with the press. Um, he's complained they don't give him respect. Not our job, by the way. Uh, he bashes outlets like the New York Post. He calls the mainstream media divisive. Um, we have a president who does that. <laughs> Why, you know, will he face criticism from Democrats for his treatment of the press? Well, I'd actually say he's in a position to actually get some kind of friendly coverage here. That uh, that walk to this studio and to the other studios around town aren't far from City Hall. I think just being the mayor of That's New York true. City and, yeah. and you're seeing a mayor of South Bend, Indiana, get all this attention. He's saying, hey, I govern 10 million people. Why can't I get that attention? So, Doug, I feel like Trump will have a field day with de Blas. Is, yep. is Con Don really going to... You know, hit him where it hurts. <laughs> uh, no, no, but it, it shows that where Donald Trump has been effective when he gives nicknames, it sticks with those people. Clearly, Democrats have learned from Trump's tactics. Mm. And Bill de Blasio is somebody who has a pretty fiery temper himself. So we may see yes. some of that. That may drive some coverage. But again, he's got to get to the debate stage to change the debate. If he can't do that, then this is going to be a real problem for him. If he does, he could have a moment. Doug and I can identify with this, though. We're both former staffers. He's a former staffer. And let me just tell you something. Running a former staffer for political office, this is probably what you're going to get. Is people How, what not do you mean? Like How? Bill de Blasio is like a very noted uh, campaign staffer on the Hillary Clinton campaign in 2008. Mm-hmm. Doug and I, let's just say, we are hacks <laughs> ourselves. You suffer so from I can, that yeah. a little? So I can understand <laughs> how he would get under the skin of somebody. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, while I have you guys yeah. here, I think we should talk about Justin Amash yeah. and the big news that he just made today uh, at the 
outset of the show, I read his very lengthy Twitter statement, not calling for impeachment per se, but suggesting that all the stuff is there if Democrats want to walk down that path. Your take. I don't think any of this stuff is going to shake the ground. Listen, Donald Trump was elected with people knowing he's a philanderer, he's a tax cheat, he's a liar, he's a bigot. These are all things that we knew about Donald Trump. Nothing that Justin Amash does is going to change that. Now, if you start getting to people like Mitch McConnell, you start getting to mainstream Republicans that are actually opinion influencers and shapers, that's when you talk to me. Right now, well, Justin Amash, I don't think so. to others? Uh, I no, asked Bill Crystal, does this mean like Ben Sass will say right. something? Or could this domino to some other No, not yet. And, and here's why. And I, I agree with pretty much everything that um, Congressman Amash said. Yeah. But Congressman Amash has taken a career out of um, being the contrarian to whatever the prevailing Republican wins, uh, Republican yeah. wisdom is. Having worked in House Republican leadership, whatever leadership wanted to do, Justin Amash was on the other side and was proud to be on the other side. Right. Didn't matter what the policies were. Didn't matter what the politics were, except look at me. I'm independent. This is a big so part of what he doesn't have a lot of friends no. on, on the Hill in the Republican Party who might say, I'll, I'll, I'll no. come to you. But if he runs for re-election, then, then we'll see what he does. And does, does Club for Growth, which has viewed him as a hero, right. back him? That's a different I would equation. imagine Doug and the Republicans feel the same way about Justin Amash that Democrats felt about Joe Lieberman about a decade ago, right? Anything that Joe Lieberman is going to do is to get under the skin of the leadership of the party. Agitators. Yes. Um, thank can, you. Can I say very yes. quickly, what? Scott Claffey, happy 40th birthday. All right. <laughs> Doug, hi. <laughs> Joel Payne, thanks very much. So to Fox or not to Fox, that's the question that many 2020 Democrats seem to be asking. I'll talk about the wisdom of taking a hard pass on an invitation from the enemy. Next. Boycotting a news outlet you don't like is something President Trump would and has done. It's something we rightly criticize him for. And yet a few Democrats running for president have decided to take up his tactic. Elizabeth Warren figuratively lit Fox News on fire this week, refusing to do a town hall on the network, saying this. Fox News is a hate for profit racket that gives a megaphone to racists and conspiracists. Hate for profit works only if there's a profit. So Fox News balances a mix of bigotry, racism and outright lies with enough legit journalism to make the claim to advertisers that it's a reputable news outlet. It's all about dragging in ad money, big ad money. I won't ask millions of Democratic primary voters to tune in to an outlet that profits from racism and hate in order to see our candidates. Kamala Harris also said she'd skip out on a Fox town hall, but Bernie Sanders took a different approach. Here's what he said. To me, it is important to distinguish Fox News from the many millions of people who watch Fox News. So I think it is important to talk to Trump supporters and explain to him to what degree he has betrayed uh, the working class of this country and lied during his campaign. In addition to Sanders, Amy Klobuchar appeared in a Fox town hall. And tomorrow, Pete Buttigieg will be the third Democrat to do one. Kirsten Gillibrand is set for one next month. So how will Warren's middle finger to millions of Fox viewers go over? I have just the person to discuss. CNN chief media correspondent and host of Reliable Sources, Brian Stelter. So, Brian, on the one hand, this bought Warren some attention this week. Um, And among Fox News viewers, she's like the least liked Democrat uh, among the bunch. Was this a smart move on her part? You say it's a middle finger to Fox's viewers. Some may take it that way. I think what Warren was doing is trying to talk about the content and the business model of Fox News Mm -hmm. and not about the viewers. And I think that's a really interesting distinction here. The Democrats who are willing to go on Fox. Yeah. They're saying we need to reach Fox's viewers. Yeah. We don't like the content, but we need to reach the millions of people who tune in because some of them might be persuadable. Yeah. What Elizabeth Warren is saying is 
the content is so extreme, so unacceptable, so hateful in her words, mm -hmm. that I can't support this channel by appearing on it, by providing content to the channel in the form of a town hall. She's saying the business model is part of the problem, and she's objecting to the business model, well, which is in line with her candidacy, which is kind of interesting. Well, but, but what a, about Bernie's, Bernie's point that yeah. Democrats running have an opportunity to speak to Trump voters? I mean, Elizabeth Warren says she's a champion of the working class. The working class watches Fox. She is kind of alone on this, as you said. Yeah. Only Kamala Harris. Uh, and, and Kamala's not making noise about this no, right. the way Elizabeth Warren is. Yeah. Warren views it as a fundraising opportunity. Mm -hmm. uh, but so are some of the other candidates, actually. Uh, Pete Buttigieg just came out with an expl explanation about why he's willing to go on Fox tomorrow. Right. And he included a fundraising link as well. He says, even though he doesn't think Fox's opinion hosts operate in good faith, yeah. he thinks the viewers operate in good faith. So again, the viewers mm -hmm. versus the business model. Warren's attacking the business model. The others are pursuing the viewers. In fact, John Hickenlooper and John Delaney both said, hey, if you're not going to have a town hall, we'd like one instead. Right. Um, so what about her other point that, that Fox pretends to be a reputable news outlet but isn't really? I remember when Obama tried that and Jake Tapper, who wasn't with us at the time he was with ABC News, called him out on it. Hmm. What about that point that she's trying to make? And, and that Obama White House strategy did not work very well and, no, did, not last, and did not last very long. Yeah. Obama was never a friend of Fox, but he, he, he brought down the... It, at some point, he, he did he grant to interviews. And isolate, he, yeah. he, he appeared on the channel a few times. Yeah. I do think we've got to recognize Fox is unique in this conversation in American politics and media. There's nothing like it on the left. There's nothing like it in the middle. Fox has a near monopoly on the right. There's no version of this conversation about Republicans appearing uh, on other networks or appearing on MSNBC, for example. Yeah. It doesn't get discussed in the same way. Hmm. Fox is unique because it has that kind of stranglehold on uh, on the audience. And that's actually why I think this is a more interesting issue in the general than in the primary. Huh. Uh, I think in a primary election, you're, you're reaching fewer people that are going to go out to Iowa, New Hampshire, others to vote for you than you are in the general. I think it's a tougher calculus if you're a Democratic nominee for president, what you do. Hillary Clinton mm. only very, very reluctantly appeared on Fox uh, it, you know, in 2016. It's a tough calculation, but I think it's probably more valuable to reach people during the general election on Fox than it is during the primary. When, when you're running for the primaries, right. aren't you trying to get out your base? You're trying yes. to get out, you're trying to motivate uh, people that are watching Rachel Maddow, not Tucker Carlson. Yeah, and it'll be interesting. I, I don't happen to think Elizabeth Warren will be the nominee, but if she is, <laughs> um, then she'll have a decision to make uh, about what she does with Fox News and, and Fox News debates. And by the way, the we also don't know what Joe Biden will do. Biden's been quiet about right. this. He hasn't commented. Right. That's the big question I have. Is Biden going to agree to a town hall on Fox? Well, All would... the channels are doing them. CNN's had a lot of them. Yeah. Fox is only having a few. I wonder if Biden wants one. I mean, that's really interesting because it would really comport with his message, right? Which is unity, bridging right. these divides. Right. It would seem like a useful thing. For a logical move for him. Yeah, yeah, I would think so. Brian Selter, thank you, my friend. Thanks. Happy birthday to Sunny. Thank as you. Well. Thanks. Uh, make sure to check Brian out on Reliable Sources tomorrow at 11 a.m. Eastern. Up next, U.S. officials told our allies that Iran was escalating hostilities and they asked for the receipts. It's not great when your allies don't believe you. That's next. In the red file tonight, good news. The president doesn't want to go to war with Iran. And in a sign that tensions may be easing, officials now say Iran has removed missiles from at least two boats. Satellite images of missiles being moved around on small boats in Iranian territorial waters sparked the heightened concerns the past couple of weeks among Trump's more hawkish advisors who'd begun planning for an actual war. Looking at you, John Bolton. But beyond the usual dose of chaos, the ongoing confrontation with Iran exposes a growing divide between the U.S. and our European allies. 
The British general serving as deputy commander of the U.S.-led fight against ISIS contradicted the guidance from the White House, saying there is no increased threat from Iranian-backed forces. European foreign ministers refused to hold a group meeting on Iran with Secretary Pompeo. Spain pulled one of its ships from a U.S. armada heading for the Persian Gulf. After two years of Trump lying, the world seems to be saying, no, show us your receipts. So just how close are we to war with Iran? Joining me to break it all down, former State Department spokesperson under President Obama, Admiral John Kirby. Um, Admiral Kirby, what do you make of the week's confused messaging on Iran? I think the basic issue here, Essie, is that this administration doesn't really know what it wants as an end result here with, with respect to Iran. There is confusion inside the administration. I think the president really does want to try to get a new deal out of Iran. That's not going to be likely. They've said they're not going to talk to him. I think Poulton, Pol, uh, Pompeo and Bolton are much more hawkish and actually are talking more openly about regime change. I don't know yeah. that the president's really there. And I think that the Europeans and I think that the Iranians and I think that our Arab allies in the region all see through the big gaps inside this, this administration. Well, I mean, to your point, we have a president who promised to get us out of wars, but then stacked his cabinet with hawks. He talks about withdrawing, and yet he's amped up our use of drone strikes abroad. I mean, even outdoing Obama. What what is the Trump doctrine? And why is he why did he set this up so that actually people around him kind of disagree with him? I don't think there is a Trump doctrine. I I think he likes to be strong or likes to be seen as strong. And he's Mm -hmm. not afraid to use force. He used it in Syria. Uh, You know, he's not afraid to to actually go ahead and and make good on these threats. I think he just wants to appear strong. I think what's going on right now, though, they really are... Uh, trying to deter Iranian actions. I know General McKenzie very well, known him Mm -hmm. for 10 years. He wouldn't have asked for those extra forces, that aircraft carrier, if he didn't really think he needed. I do honestly believe that even for the divisions inside the administration, they are trying to deter something from Iran. They're not trying to actually cause a confrontation. There is risk of miscalculation, clearly, because not all of these militias have specific chain of command ties to Tehran. And so there could be proxies out there that actually start a confrontation we're not ready for. But I do think that the administration truly is trying to to keep a conflict from happening. Well, so to, you know, American public, how serious should we take Iran's aggressions? It seems like you're fairly concerned. I am. And and we all should be. Look, I mean, I'm no apologist for Iran. I mean, I believed in the Iran deal. Clearly, I I think that an Iran without a nuclear weapon makes all the other problems with Iran easier to deal with. Mm -hmm. So I'm obviously in favor of that deal. And I think it was a mistake for Trump to uh, to pull out of it. But that said, they are a state sponsor of terrorism. They do have expansionist uh, inclinations and desires in the region. They do support Hamas, Hezbollah. I mean, and they have killed American troops. So clearly they're a threat. I just think that it was a mistake for Trump to take the one thing off the table that you didn't have to worry about, them building a nuclear bomb, and then deal specifically with those threats. You could do it with sanctions. You could do it with increased military Mm -hmm. pressure. And I think, you know, SE, looking ahead, I would not be surprised if you see the CENTCOM force posture changing. We have a carrier group now there. We have a bomber task force. I don't know how much of all that's going to stay, but I wouldn't be surprised if you see the Pentagon talking about Hmm. boosting some long-term military presence there as a result. Wow. Well, one of, I think, the scariest consequences of, of Trump's lies and, and the chaos in his foreign policy is that our allies don't know when to believe us. How right. bad is that? 
Well, it's, it's hugely, uh, it's a huge problem in, in diplomacy because your allies are the, the people you're going to want to support you if and when it does come to conflict, and even if it doesn't, just in terms of economic sanctions. Uh, but, and the Iranians know that, and they're driving a truck through it. They're trying, if you, you looked at what Rouhani did when he said, I'm going to start, uh, you know, building my stockpiles of heavy water and low-enriched uranium, it was a, that was a, a shot across the Europeans' bow, mm. basically telling them, don't go along with Trump and his sanctions, stay inside the deal. So he knows that there's friction between us and our allies. And, and, the, and to the degree that there is real tension with our, uh, between us and our allies, I mean, it, it does mean that it's going to be much harder for Trump to get any international support for anything that he wants to do going forward in the region. I just got to ask your take um, on Senator Tom Cotton's comments earlier this week. Um, he was asked whether we are ready to go to war with Iran, something I think no one should want. Right. And he said, yeah, we'll be done two strikes, the first and the last. I think that was an incredibly cavalier comment to be made. And especially I was surprised coming from a veteran, a combat vet, no less, right. uh, to talk to talk that sort of in a cavalier fashion about uh, war and conflict with Iran. Look, if there would be conflict with Iran, it would not be clean. It would certainly not be bloodless. And it would require a whole lot more resources than we have in the region right now. And it would be more lengthy, I think, than anybody can imagine. It's not going to be a, a, you know, a, a two punch yeah. kind of a thing, you know, us hitting them and them yeah. hitting the canvas. I, I found that Thank really you. irresponsible. Thank you, uh, Admiral Corby. Appreciate it. You bet. Thank you. We'll be right back. Are you a convicted criminal, a disgraced athlete, a scofflaw? Well, have I got a deal for you. Say a few kind words about the president and you too could get a Medal of Freedom or a presidential pardon. It's that simple, folks. In three easy installments of tweets or public praise, the one and only Donald Trump will bestow upon you one of the greatest honors an American civilian can receive or totally erase your criminal past. Sound too good to be true? Just look. Tiger Woods, longtime friend and business associate of President Trump, as well as longtime Laos, I'm a woman, we can say that, was just honored by the president with a Medal of Freedom for his lifetime achievement of playing golf. Wowza. Conrad Black, a billionaire media mogul and longtime friend of President Trump, was just pardoned for crimes, including embezzlement and obstruction of justice. Poof. Joe Arpaio, celebrity sheriff and longtime friend of President Trump, was pardoned before serving any jail time for criminal contempt in disobeying a federal judge. Kabam. Dinesh D'Souza, Scooter Libby, arsonists, a convicted war criminal, all pardoned by Donald Trump. You, too, can buy our nation's top honor or a presidential pardon, again, with three easy installments of tweets or praise, because America's going out of business and everything must go. Praise for white supremacists, evil dictators, murderous regimes, for sale. Get out of jail free cards for sale. Access to the president for sale. Shady Russian business deals. Yep. For sale. Folks, if it's not nailed down, it's for sale. So get it while you can, because Trump's American fire sale won't last long. Here's hoping, at least. That's it for me tonight. But coming up, Dr. Sanjay Gupta explores the painkiller capital of the world, Turkey. Chasing life with Dr. Sanjay Gupta tonight at 9 Eastern. Don't miss that. Newsroom with Ana Cabrera is next. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. 
And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.